I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A night that started with the birthday celebration ended in tragedy when a fire erupted in the early hours at the Freeman home. Among the rubble, two adults were found, both with a gunshot wound to the head. However, two teenage girls were missing. This is episode 28, the Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm great. I'm always happy when we're recording. Always happy to be with you, Megan. Me too. Today's episode is a little bit different than usual. As always, we're going to start off talking about the case, but rather than spend a lot of time dissecting it, at the conclusion, we are going to talk with Jax Miller. I know. I've been very excited about this. Yeah. So Jax Miller is the author of Hell in the Heartland, Murder, Meth, and the Case of the Two Missing Girls. She's also one of the producers on the HLN doc on this case. She is awesome. I haven't seen the HLN doc yet. I was holding out a little bit on that one, but I did read the book. I was just going to ask you. I could guess what you thought of it, but... I could, but we can talk about it later. So this one will also be a little different because I have a little more knowledge than Mm -hmm. normal about your case, but I can talk about this forever. Excellent. Yeah. So the book was excellent. And as you'll learn shortly, Jax not only wrote the book, she actually spent several years investigating this case, and she also has grown quite close to some of those involved, but more on that later. Okay. The Freeman family lived in a small rural town of Welch, Oklahoma. That's in northern Oklahoma. It's only, I believe, eight miles from the Kansas border. Right. They lived in a trailer on a remote property, very rural area. When you say the family, you mean the Freeman family, right? Correct. The Freeman family consisted of 16-year-old Ashley, 
her mother, Kathy, and her father, Danny. The family had recently lost their son, Shane. Shane was just a teenager when he was involved in a police shooting. Going to give you a very brief summary on what happened with Shane because it might be a little relevant. Shane had run away from home and he told authorities that he was abused by his father, Danny. Danny was subsequently charged with assault. This was back in January of 1999. It turns out Shane had stolen a vehicle and a gun, and this all resulted in an altercation with an officer, which ended in Shane pulling a gun and a deputy firing and killing Shane almost instantly. There was a big investigation, and the sheriff's department concluded that the shooting was justified. However, the family did not believe that the shooting was in fact justified. It was hard for them to believe, They did not think that it was self-defense, as the sheriff's department claimed. They said it was a cold-blooded murder. Didn't they also file a lawsuit? Yeah, well, they were in the middle of filing a wrongful death lawsuit. Right. And that's why this is going to come into play later, correct? Exactly. Okay. The family was very vocal, and there was a big rift between the police and the Freeman family. Lots of tension going on. And as I mentioned, this becomes possibly a part of this case. Yes. So Ashley Freeman's best friend was Laura Bible. The two girls met in kindergarten and they were instant friends, just like us. I was going to say that. (laughs) They were inseparable, both in school and out of school. In 1995, Ashley's family moved about 20 minutes away, but their friendship remained very strong. And Laura was quite close to her parents, Lorene and Jay, and came from a very tight-knit family. On December 29th, 1999, Laura and Ashley spent the evening together celebrating Ashley's 16th birthday. That day, they had gone shopping with Kathy, Ashley's mom. They had returned home and they had birthday cake with her parents and Ashley's boyfriend, Jeremy. After the festivities, Jeremy left about 9.30 p.m. and he says everything appeared to be quite normal. And Laura stayed the night. Did you read this part already that she was act- she had stayed the night before and she was supposed to go home and then she asked for permission to stay another night? So this was like an additional. Yes. And since it was Ashley's birthday, you know, Laura's mom said, you have a dentist appointment early the next day. You have to come home. But I sort of just had a little pit in my stomach when I, I know, read that part. I know. And the way the parents, I don't know if you've seen the parents talk about this, but the way they explain it, it was, you know, it's just, it's so yeah. heartbreaking. Around 5.30 a.m. the next morning, the police received a call stating that the Freeman's trailer was engulfed in flames. Law enforcement showed up on the scene and they were quick to determine that the fire had been intentionally started. Inside the home, the charred remains of Kathy, who was 38 at the time, was discovered and she was found lying on the floor of their bedroom and an autopsy would soon reveal that she had been shot in the head and in fact she was shot prior to the fire being started. At this point, that was the only body that was found. Okay. So initially, no other remains were located. Law enforcement at this time started to believe that Ashley's father, Danny Friedman, had likely killed his wife and fled with both girls. Now, this goes back to what was going on with the police. The police had a theory that Danny was so angry about what had happened with his son, you know, just months prior, that he killed his wife and was taking the girls as a way to hold them hostage. It didn't make much sense, but no one knew what to think at this time. It didn't make much sense also, but I did read Mm -hmm. in the book that Danny also could be like the nicest guy, but was also volatile and had a bad temper. So I could maybe see if he's missing why they're they're going to that assumption. And he has a long history of, of drug abuse. Right. That doesn't mean necessarily that he would do such a thing, but he has tendencies to be violent when he's under the influence. And you have to make certain assumptions when you're on a crime scene quickly when they're missing children. Exactly. 
However, this theory didn't last long. Number one, Danny and Kathy's cars were both there. Laura's car was also in the driveway, actually with the keys in the ignition. And where they lived in a rural area, it's not that you could just get away on foot. So with the cars all being there, it, it was a little questionable. Either way, the local police were quick to call in the state police, the OSBI, which is the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. The local police did this because of the history with the family. Oh, I remember that yeah, now. So okay. Yes. Remember, there was so they called it a conflict of interest. And I actually don't fault them for this. I think this was a smart move because they were in the middle of a wrongful death lawsuit with the family. And like I said, almost a year prior, they had killed the Freeman's son. Totally the right move. Definitely the right move. The problem is that people had a big issue with this because it took a little longer to start properly investigating because you have the local police who aren't doing much while they're waiting for you know the state police to be called in. And some people say they lost some time here. They probably did lose time. I'm sure the local police, though, I would think at a minimum, they put out some type of, and I don't think Amber Alert was a yeah. thing, though. They probably tried to put out some type of alert just for the girls Correct. or him. You know, They probably did some minimal work. They did. But as we'll see, there's some evidence that ended up being found that could have led them to Laura and Ashley when they were still alive. All right. right. Okay. Laura's parents, Lorene and Jay, were obviously very unhappy with the police's response. Their daughter was missing. So they decided to go to the scene themselves, hoping to find any additional clues that law enforcement may have missed. And Megan, get ready for this. While walking around the extensive rubble, they discovered some evidence. You remember. I do. They discovered another body in the rubble, and they quickly were able to determine that it was Danny. Danny had also been shot in the head execution style. He had a broken collarbone, which suggests that there may have been a struggle. His body was found not far from Kathy's. No gun was found nearby. Quickly, people say, oh, murder-suicide. Because again, everyone wants to look at Danny as the suspect here. However, there was no gun found near the body shooting down that theory. So Lorene and her husband found Danny's body. And not, not only, not not only the did they find it... They said it was covered by debris and there were actually boot prints visible on his body. So that means that officers had stepped over his body. Absolutely. Okay, that's a serious problem. It's a serious problem. So you have both the local police and the state police that are on the scene and somehow they miss this. At this point, Lorene and Jay are wondering, well, what else could they have missed? And they really jumped into action and they just started investigating themselves. They got 500 volunteers. They were going through the rubble bit by bit trying to find any pieces of evidence. Exactly what I'd do if it was my daughter. There were absolutely no signs of the missing girls. As I mentioned, the police had to change their initial theory, though, right? There's Couldn't it be that Danny had kidnapped the girls? It couldn't be a murder-suicide. So now they're thinking maybe it was a drug deal gone bad. People around town knew that Danny was heavily involved in drugs. They really didn't think it could be a random attack. And as we see often... This kind of crime very rarely is a random attack. I wouldn't have thought random attack either. Was Danny involved in, I know that he used marijuana, but mm-hmm. he was also involved in meth, correct? We don't know. It, We're not there sure. There's definitely okay. reports that he was. Okay. It, at the very least, he hung around with a lot of people who ran in those circles. Okay. So the police are thinking, could it have been the girls? Perhaps. Remember how I said that Danny had abused Shane? Well, Ashley had a hard time with the death of her brother, and some say that she may have been upset about her brother's death and maybe the father was also abusing Ashley. Maybe Kathy stepped in to protect his daughter and then maybe the girls killed Danny and they fled. Okay. Sounds like a probable theory, except the cars were there and the girls' pocketbooks were still in the home with all of their belongings. But I do want to mention one thing that was curious is that apparently Ashley had stored $4,000 in cash in the freezer. She was a hard worker and she was saving up for a car. So other family members told the police about this. 
and that money was actually gone. So this theory that the girls did it and fled, no evidence of this, highly unlikely. Some people suggest that maybe she offered the perpetrators this money as a way to have them leave. So that's possible. That's why the money is missing. But no one, there's no confirmation that that money was in fact there anyway. I don't remember that. That's interesting. Okay. As usually happens with these types of cases, lots of tips came in, but they were all dead end. Several people called in sightings of Danny and the girls. However, we know Danny was dead, so that can't be possible. Right. The Freemans and many others believe that the local sheriff's department was responsible. There was this huge conspiracy theory. Do you remember hearing about that? I do, yes. Apparently, Danny had told his brother soon before the fire that if anything had happened to him, look at the sheriff's department. There was a lot of intimidation and harassment going on between Danny and the sheriff's department, again, because of what had happened with their son, Shane. Right. The family was in the process of filing a wrongful death suit. And I did read somewhere that they only had one week until that expired because it's supposed to be within a year. And that is, I mean, unfortunately, that's just very coincidental. And that happens sometimes. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that hence a coincidence. But still, I mean, I understand why there was some scrutiny on this. I also do. This theory was ruled out pretty quickly by the state police. It seemed like a stretch, really, I think, to say that the police would obliterate a whole family over a wrongful death lawsuit. I mean, if it was just Danny that was gone, to be honest, or just the parents, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that means, you know, the police did it, but it has it would hold a little bit more water. So I think you're right. It's a real stretch. Yeah. At this time, there was a local inmate who came forward and said he had seen Laura and Ashley at a New Year's Eve party and they were drugged, raped and tortured. The police searched the home that he alleged that this happened at, and they found absolutely nothing. I do want to point out that many other people came forward with this party that they saw the girls at this New Year's Eve party. I remember reading this. Yeah, it's really awful. The community really band together for the searches of the girls. In January of 2000, there was a large memorial service held for Danny and Kathy. The investigation continued on. Again, no real leads, zero signs of the girls. There was a $15,000 reward that was offered. Every time they offered a reward, again, lots of tips would come in, but they were all dead ends. The police started looking at neighboring states and at other crimes. I don't know if you recall hearing about this, but two death row inmates confessed to these crimes at two different times. No. Do you know uh, who Tommy Lynn Sells is? Oh, that sounds familiar. I do, but I don't. So Tommy Lynn Sells committed a crime that was very similar and very close the day after the fire. Now, when Tommy Lynn Sells confessed to the crime, he was on death row. And in fact, he was executed back in 2014. He, of course, confessed after he was ruled out. Then we see John Paul Chapman. And you know John Paul Chapman. What's his real name? Jeremy Jones. Yep. He was also in the area and seemed to know things about the case, such as the type of gun used and the accelerant used. And that information was not released to the public. So the police started thinking maybe he actually did know something. But... After going, jumping through all the hoops like they usually do, you know, take take me to the scene, took him to the scene. They found nothing. He ends up recanting. So, Megan, if you're on death row, why would you confess to crimes that you did not commit? To extend my stay on death row. Exactly. You want so you want to extend your stay because at the end of your stay is death. Right. Right. You get more privileges, more, cases, more privileges, more time in the courts. It just extends your time. Exactly. And also a lot of people on death row, they just want to play the system. They are bored. I was just going to say that also don't discount the fact that there's boredom and like, you know, there's a tension that comes with that. So there's actually a multitude of reasons. Yeah. And also you want to leave your cell. You yeah. get to go with the police. I'll show you where the body is. Yeah. Let's take a ride to a rural area that kills a whole day that you could have been on death row staring at the wall. Tommy Lynn Sells 
confessed to over 70 murders while he was on death row. So I teach serial killers and I can tell you that a lot of serial killers over confess by a lot. And it's for those reasons. I guess that doesn't surprise me. It could also be, Megan, as you know, in prison, you get visitation, you get more time on the kiosk, you get a different meal. When you're in a desperate situation like that, you will do anything. You have nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Nope. Either way, we're going, you know, we have all of these leads and everything ends up a dead end. In 2010, the OSBI released details about two vehicles that had been seen around the crime scene. Again, nothing came out of this. It just pissed the public off because they wanted to know, why didn't we hear this sooner? Right. So my point is that there were little things here and there happening. But for the most part, the case went pretty cold. So let's fast forward until 2018 when the case finally started moving again. And as we often see, some say it was thanks to the family and friends of the girls who would not give up on their search. I read about Lorene and I mean, she seemed to be the driving force behind this. Absolutely. She still is. And we'll, I definitely want to talk to Jax about her because from what I understand, they have quite a strong relationship now. That's great. So between, you know, the family not giving up and also some new people taking a look at some old evidence, the police were able to identify three perpetrators. Oh, my gosh. Two of three have since died. Phil Welch was considered the ringleader and David Pennington. The third, Ronnie Busick, is still alive. He had been in and out of prison on drug-related convictions for nearly 40 years. Right. He's been apprehended at this time. He was, in fact, incarcerated at the time he was arrested in relation to the girl's death. Right. He's a career criminal. Oh, absolutely. And since he was the only one alive of the three suspected perpetrators, he uh, was being charged with four counts of first degree murder, two counts of kidnapping and arson. Details of the girl's horrific final days finally emerged. They went to the trailer to settle a drug debt. And when things didn't go as planned, they killed Kathy and Danny. I heard that the girls were able to escape the trailer and hide out in the fields. But unfortunately... The perpetrators did find them. And from what some informants said, they just wanted to have a little fun with the girls. The girls were kept alive for an unknown number of days. Some reports say one to two weeks. An ex-girlfriend of Welch told police that he had decorated his trailer with Ashley and Laura's missing person posters, but she didn't think to call the police. Also, Welch had Polaroids that showed Ashley and Laura bound and gagged on his bed. This was this is, was the key piece of evidence, right? Someone, he showed the Polaroids to a few people. They end up having at least a dozen witnesses who came forward to say that they saw these photos. <sighs> and they say that the men kept these photographs as trophies to brag about their crimes and to use it to threaten other witnesses to keep them silent. I also read that Phil Walsh was one of the most sadistic Ugh. human beings. He, I mean, what I read about him was probably more awful than anyone yes. I've studied before. Absolutely. It turns out many people knew about what was going on, but they were scared to death of Phil and his crew. Another witness told authorities that the girls were held for days at Phil's trailer. They were raped violently. They had parties that other people would abuse the girls, and then eventually they were strangled to death. And the police believe that their bodies were then thrown in a pit. There's all these mine shafts in the area. Mm-hmm. And several people have come forward saying that they do believe that that's where the bodies were done. So at this point, the focus is really on recovering the body of these two victims. I yeah. read that that's always, sorry, I read that's mm-hmm. always been Lorene's focus. So e- even when these perpetrators were identified and apprehended, she yep. said, I want my daughter's exactly. remains. Yep. 
As we often see, Megan, closure for victims usually doesn't occur when someone is finally apprehended and charged for the crime. She wants to have a proper burial for her daughter. Right. They felt like they finally might have had a chance when in July of 2020, very recently, Busick took a plea. Now he was, or he is almost 70 years old at this time. He took a plea deal to a lesser charge, one count of accessory to murder in the first degree in exchange for his commitment to help investigators find the teen's remains. At first, I'm looking at this thinking, this isn't a strong enough deal because his deal was that he would serve 15 years in prison if the remains are not found and only five if they could find the remains before August 31st. So I think it's really interesting that the investigators put a time on this. They said, if you don't get us these girls' bodies by August 31st, then the deal is over. Because I don't think they want him to dilly-dally them around for a long time. Exactly. And the age he is, I think people also know he's in very bad health. I saw that. He's in really poor health. You know, at this point, it's too, a death sentence. They want him punished, but she wants her the remains. Exactly. And that's exactly what Lorene would say. Yeah. Yeah, of course, I want him to be punished, but he's been in and out of jail the last 40 years anyway. So he's kind of being punished in some right. sense. At this point, she just wants her girl back. And the day that we record this is just a couple of days after August 31st. So I was watching, I was like glued to my computer because August 31st was the deadline. If you don't give us the location of these girls' bodies, you're getting the higher end of that deal. Oh my gosh, and that's a couple days ago. Two days ago. So Ronnie Busick was sentenced to 10 years in prison. They also gave him credit for the two years that he has been in jail. So he has 10 years in, so really eight years in and then five years of probation. He told the police several places to search, but in fact, nothing showed up. And I'm not sure that it's because he's leading them to the wrong place. I think it's possible that the remains are just hard to find at this point. Hard to find. It may have been that Phil Welsh um, or Welch, sorry, Mm -hmm. uh, was more of the leader. And it could have been even that the other accomplice helped dispose or it could be because of years of substance abuse. He can't remember. Not only that, he also suffered a gunshot wound to the head. I mean, I, I doubt, you know, he's taken... He's taken a plea. He's admitted his guilt. I doubt he's actually stringing them along at this point. I agree. Sure. I don't think I don't think he's purposely not telling them where the body is. I think he did the best he could. But either way, he's only getting he's only going to be in prison another eight years. But again, even though he's only 68 or 69, he's an old 68 or 69 decades of drug abuse, a gunshot wound to the head. He's not in good health here. They'll go back to him again, too, and try to, I, I would imagine they're going to go back a couple times and try to even make another plea. And, you know, what can you remember? Yeah. I, I can't imagine that they'll give up. I don't think they will. So I feel for this family. They still don't have that closure. I can't wait to talk to Jax. One of the things you mentioned earlier, though, that I wanted to follow up about is there was a key piece of evidence found almost immediately that could have told could have saved the girls' lives. Do yes. you remember what this key piece of evidence <laughs> yes, is? Yeah, so they found the insurance card of one of, of Phil's girlfriend at the time. And if the girls were in fact kept alive, if they had used that evidence immediately like they should have, it could have led them right to the girls because those Polaroids showing the girls was the bedspread that were that was in Phil's trailer. The address on the card could have led them to the girls. Immediately. And if the girls were kept alive, they they could have found them alive. I, it's such yes. an unfortunate oversight. And it does show you that there were some serious botches in this investigation. In the beginning, when you know the local police transferred it to the state police, that was the point where things were moving slow and they weren't searching the scene the way they should have. That card was the key piece of evidence. And I do believe that that piece of evidence 
was one of the most, if not the most important pieces of evidence in 2018 that led to the arrests of the three men. I wish they had investigated properly because I think that while Danny and Kathy were killed immediately, I think these girls could have been recovered alive. And I think it's such a tragedy all around that they were not. I mean, I, I also would like to know a lot more now about Lorene and uh, the other people involved and, and where they stand, given the apprehension of Ronnie Busick and going forward, what's going, what looks like it's going to happen now. And we'll also keep an eye on this case since it's so new. The sentencing is so new. Well, I'm definitely interested to see if anything else comes out of this, because the police do believe that now that there's this new interest in the case, the sentencing just happened, the book just came out. I've heard that there's suspicion that there are several more people involved. It was not just those three men. Because remember that New Year's Eve party? Yes. That there's other people that were involved in, you know, in the sexual assault of these young girls. It sounds like it. Well, thanks, Amy. Yes. Uh, maybe we could turn it over to our interview now to Jax Miller. Yes. Enjoy this interview with Jax Miller, author of Hell in the Heartland, Murder, Meth, and the Case of the Two Missing Girls. <laughs> So, Jax, first off, I'm sure you get this a lot, but I would love to hear, how did your interest in true crime begin? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, I love being a woman and I love writing crime. So this is uh, very <laughs> special. So thank you. Um, you know, I don't have a good answer. I think everybody expects me to have this like great prolific answer as to how I got into this case. And it was really kind of one of those darts at a phone book things when I decided I wanted to kind of shift gears a little bit and go from fiction to nonfiction, you know, I, I was looking at a few different cases, you know, this one just drew me in. I think it was because initially, because I was close to the girl's age, I went out there for a couple of weeks just to kind of get a lay of the land. I was living in Ireland at the time. And once I met Lorreen Bible, especially once I met the relatives and the families and I saw everyone involved, it's like, I can't not write this story, you know, and um, I've been a part of it ever since. Well, that was that's actually a nice segue to my next question is what was the process of writing the book? Because I understand that you spent several years. Were you actually living in Oklahoma at some point? So there's varying reports out there as to how much time I spent out there. <laughs> okay. um, they weren't always consecutive. So I'd spend a few months here, a few months there. And I, I moved around a lot, you know, just for more for safety reasons. You know, I don't want people knowing where I was. You're in a small town. But what was important to me going there first is I really just wanted to get a lay of the land, the smells, the food, the people, get that lingo and that and, and that vernacular. And that was important to me because I, I, I don't see a point of writing from a desk true crime. I think you have to write it from the heart. You have to get in there and pull people in instead of bringing it to a reader. You need to bring the reader in. We read a lot of true crime. And I have to say, you get that feel. It is very clear that you are fully immersed. I felt literally like you just said, I felt like I was pulled in and I became so invested in the story. And I do. I read tons of true crime. That's pretty much all I you know devour, true and fiction. But that's what I thought. I thought you did a oh, brilliant job. Oh, thank you very much. That means me a lot in. to me. So our listeners just heard about the case. So I'm not going to get too much into the details, but just generally speaking, what do you think were some of the biggest mistakes made in the investigation? Oh, you know, it, it's so hard to say because for legal reasons, I've had to walk a very fine line between putting information out there versus saying what I really feel. You know, we've had ah. to avoid words like corruption because that calls for operation of the mind. I can't say he's corrupt without evidence. Mm -hmm. You know what I, so I've, I've had to walk a very fine line. So let me think about how to answer this. Um, I think 
from the get-go there were problems. I think that was made evident when Lorene and Jay found the body. And you have to remember, this is not what you see on TV. This is a gruesome scene. you got to imagine what that looked like, what it smelled like. It's a horrible, traumatizing thing. And they neglected to, to put the girls on the uh, on the databases, the NCIC, for, you know, for getting the girls' faces out there. So nobody was looking for the girls. And that's just a few. I think there were so many other smaller things that didn't make the book. A lot of things that could have been done differently. Absolutely. Can I add one or just ask you how big this was without giving too much away? But I thought there was a significant oversight with the identification or a driver's license and ID card of one of the suspects being found oh, early on. Card? An insurance card, a card card that traced to one of the suspects that could have possibly meant, had they followed that lead immediately, possibly saving the girls' lives. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's something didn't really know until 2018. You know, it's kind of crazy because when I came to this story in like late 2015, early 2016 versus where we are today, so much has evolved. So I've kind of been on this ride along the way. So when I first came in, we had no idea about this insurance, or, or at least I didn't. And then um, in 2018, when it finally came out, it was like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And like, I think that that was the biggest revelation was had they followed up with this. I do believe that they would have found the girls perhaps damaged, probably, you know, but alive nonetheless. You know, even if they weren't alive, at least they would have led them to the bodies, maybe. It, it, It wasn't just the insurance card. That, that same private investigator traced the car belonging to Phil Welch that was uh, supposedly used to transport the girls. That was another big one. The witness that they didn't know about until 2018, you know, mm-hmm. who, who saw the yes. girls, like probably the last one outside their captors to see the girls, you know, things like this that just we did not know until 2018. And yes, I think that they were things that could have been discovered very early on. I mean, for God's sakes, they had Phil Welch. They, they questioned him in what, 2003, I think? I mean, there was so much, so much. Yeah, it's so unfortunate. So unfortunate. How many people do you think actually knew about the rape and murder of these girls while it was actually going on? Or do you think it was all just after the fact that people knew? Again, I have to be careful. Um, were there? Do you oh, think there I, were multiple people that knew? I think there were more. I do think there were more. Um, the reason I have to be careful is because there's stuff that has not been made public. I gotcha. believe that there were more. Not just after the fact, but at that time, I think Phil Welch was a terrifying man that I couldn't even put into words. There are people who still won't talk about him in death. There are still people who wow. are too scared of him, even after he's dead. Yeah, he. I, I, yeah. I think people did know back then, but I think they were too scared of him to say anything. So what was the most difficult part of the process for you? I think people expect me to say some crazy action-packed thing, something scary. But what was hardest for me was... Seeing the love, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Seeing how much these girls were loved, that pulls on your heartstrings. That's hard to go home with. You know, I, I, I always say I can, I can sit with a murderer in a park. I could, I could talk to, to this person and that person and, and this suspect and that. But when you see grieving family members mourn for their loved ones, that to me is the hardest thing, I think. I know you're very close with some of the victims' family members. I'm wondering, do they hold out hope? And were they surprised or let down by the recent revelation that Busick, in fact, did not have the information leading to the girls? Something I learned very early on about these families, and I can't say that that, uh, this is the case for other families in the same predicament, but they don't get their hopes up. I don't know if that's from experience or if that's just how they are naturally, if, you know, if that's part of their disposition, but they, they don't get their hopes up. They don't 
think about the what ifs. They can't. And, and, and perhaps that's a way to protect themselves. I don't know why they do that. So when Ronnie Busick said that he knew more than what he said and that he could lead them to the girls, I don't think anyone got their hopes up, but I can only speak for myself. And I know I've been, I've had times where I feel like we're so close and I've gotten my hopes up. And then I just get so depressed when they don't find the girls. They don't do that. They keep fighting. It's like, okay, that didn't work out. What's next? And that's always been how, the, how they are, how they are. Do you think Busick is actually hiding any information or do you think he simply doesn't remember due to the prolonged drug use? And I know he suffered some brain injury. Do you think he actually knows where the girls are? I, it depends on the day when you ask me. I feel like my, my mind changes. I have days where I'm convinced he knows something and I have days when I'm convinced he doesn't. Right now, I don't think he was purposefully lying when he led the, the, the authority that, that root seller and pitcher recently. I think he was wrong. Obviously, he was wrong because, you know, we didn't find anything. But I don't think he was being malicious. I think he tried his best. But I think that the drugs have messed him up. Well, it was also in his best interest to help the police because they were going to give him a better deal. Yeah, that's my opinion as well, is that he had nothing to lose by by pointing to the girls. I don't know if, if maybe in his head he thought, well, that would just tie me directly to them. And he still says he had nothing to do with their murders. Um, I, I don't know. Or some people have said, no, he likes this game. He he knows how to how to get what he wants. You know, I don't know him. Yeah. So I can't say. And somebody like him might not care about spending a decade in prison. He might know that he might not make it those whole 10 years or maybe he has nothing else going on and that works for him. Well, he's True. spent, you know, he has spent most of his adult life in prison anyway. I mean, he, he's not. That's bothered what I'm saying. It. It's home yeah. for him. He's not yeah. bothered by it. Say, Megan, did you have any questions before I. Jax, I have two questions. Sure. First is, was this crime premeditated? It depends which theory you believe is, you know. Um, and I, I know that we're not I'm not trying to give away too much about the book, but I, I want to know if this crime. I don't know, because I, I, I think it would require me to, to pick a side. Is this drugs or is this the police? And I really am divided. I have days where I'm like, this was a drug thing. And I have days when this is a, a police thing. Is it a mix of both? I do have a pretty strong opinion, but I, I don't put it out there because I don't feel like this is over yet. I feel like once this is all said and done, I can kind of open up a little more. Was okay. it premeditated? I don't know. Phil Welch, learning about him, and I, I've learned a lot about him, even in, in, in my recent trip to Oklahoma after the story. He wasn't scared of anyone, wasn't scared of anyone. And I think Danny Freeman was that kind of person, too, wasn't scared of anyone. And I think that those personalities clashed real quick in the middle of the night. And mm -hmm. that's what happened. Okay. Was it over drugs? Did the cops send Phil there? I don't know. Was the abduction of the girls premeditated in your opinion? In my opinion, I think that was a means of opportunity. I don't believe that they were targeted. I don't believe that somebody went there saying, go get the girls. I don't know whether or not. Actually, okay, this has been made public recently, so I can say this, but it wasn't in my book. It was recently learned that the girls did escape the fire, that they went to go hide in the pasture and the flames of the house lit up and one of the men saw them. And they chased them down and corralled them. We know that now. Um, that was—I don't believe that's in the book. The girls. Yeah. Also. Well, not maybe that wasn't the primary goal, but maybe it was like, hey, well, you know, we're going there for—we're going there anyway. So. Yeah, I think Phil will. I, I think Phil Welch saw a means of opportunity. I think he was—he was that person. Mm -hmm. Okay. My second question for you would be this, and it's a hard question, and I feel bad asking it, but I'm going to. Do you think Loreen? blames Danny Freeman and Kathy or herself at any level for what happened to her daughter? Or do you think she appropriately places blame with the people who committed the crime? I think she's a very hard woman to read. And I've asked her these questions myself. 
she does believe that Danny's dealings did bring trouble to the house. I don't think she believes that like he did this or that this is his fault necessarily. But I think she, she knows that, you know, her opinion is that it was his, is his dealings with drugs. And and nobody really knows how big those dealings were. Um, That just brought trouble to the house, attracted unwanted attention. But I don't think she's like, you know, Danny Freeman killed my, my, my child or anything like that. She's also very reserved, Lorena. So it's really hard to tell what she really believes. She won't let you know. With Ronnie Busick, we were in court with her and she she said, you know, she she talked about forgiveness of Ronnie Busick, which I thought was so powerful that even though that this is a man who is definitely, you know, had a part in her daughter's death, that she's still able to forgive. I think that's, and she is a forgiving woman. I mean, if you can forgive one of the men who murdered your daughter, I think that's so powerful. So I think regardless of what she believes or who she blames, she's a forgiving woman. I think that's impressive. I'm certain that I would not be capable of that forgiveness. Yeah. So um, it takes thank a special you. kind of human to be able to forgive on that level. Yeah. Yeah. You know, wow. I, I think she's so powerful. And I, I've said to her, I'm like, I don't know how you fight. I mean, I, I said, truth be told, if that was my daughter and my daughter's the same age as Laura now, I says I'd, I'd probably end up drinking myself to death. I, I really could not yeah. fight like you do. I, I could not mm-hmm. do what you do. And she said to me, well, you don't know how strong you are until you have to be. That's what she always says to me, mm. you know? Yeah, I hear that a lot. Sorry, I do have. W- oh, yeah. I literally ahead. have one more okay, question. And it was it's just one more. Do you think, but for Phil Welch, the other two, um, Busick and I forget, is it Pennington? Yeah. Do you think, but for Welch, would these two have committed this type of crime? Personally speaking, and this is just my opinion, I don't believe for one second mm-hmm. they would have. I think this was all Phil. I think Phil Welch pulling them strings. And, you know, Phil Welch had this borderline cult leader complex. You know, he 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 had a spell over people. And everyone I've ever talked to has said that. From what you wrote, just so you know, and what what I read and what I looked into Phil Welch, I would agree that he he was a cult-like figure who dominated with control. It's very similar to most of your cult-like or cult figures. Mm -hmm. He ruled in the same way with fear and control and people Mm -hmm. were totally subordinate to him. So I think that was a fair assessment. Thank you for your opinion. Right, right. And isn't it true that people still fear even cult leaders when they pass as well? Absolutely. It's it's indoctrined. Yeah. It's so interesting. and it's like they have Ronnie Busick, and I think he was low in the totem pole. I think out of those three, I, I don't—I mean, he—he he wasn't anyone, yep. you know. <laughs> I yep. thought so too. I felt bad that he was the one they wound up with, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Jack. So I just have one final question. I could clearly talk to you all day, but it—you know—just to respect your time, we're not going to do that. But um, I so now that day. you have written. <laughs> so now that you have written nonfiction and you've also wrote um, a very successful fiction book prior to this. Do you think you will continue with fiction, uh, with nonfiction? Do you think you'll move back? And which is easier or more enjoyable? Oh, gosh. Um, So I think, I've said this before, I think both genres satisfy different beasts in me. Um, Fiction is very cathartic. It's about getting my demons out. It's about purging my my emotions and getting all that shit out on on paper. It's, it's, It's very, it's for me and nobody else. I'm not writing for anyone but myself with true crime and and this is something i didn't know until after i was in it it's not about you anymore and i didn't know that going into it and that you know i i had a swallow of several slices of humble pie but it stops being about you and it's about doing something for somebody else something bigger than yourself and you don't get the same things and i don't get to purge my my emotions and my demons through true crime do you know what i mean but in fiction, I don't get to serve something bigger than myself. So 
they're very different for, for, for different reasons. And which one am I going to return to? I have no idea. (laughs) I'm still, I I, I am working on a true crime. We'll see where that goes. I suppose. You'll have to let us know. (laughs) I will definitely let you know. Trust me. As soon as I am allowed to, I will let the whole world know. Yeah. Jax, I'd love to read another true crime book. I really thought again, Um, the way you wrote this was really, you really honored the families and the girls in a way that really makes you um, a superb writer and, you know, just a compassionate person. So thank you so much for your work. I appreciate that. Thank you. We've definitely read some true crime books that are, that really are um, quite hideous the way they report the story and how they don't do justice to the victims. Right. Would you agree, Megan? I certainly agree. I think that's why we that's why we haven't had many authors on our podcast, have we? No, I think Jax probably said it best when she started out. She said, I'm a woman, and I'm a woman who writes about crime. And mm-hmm. maybe bringing those two together, <laughs> you found a, a winning formula. So, Jax, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope that um, we keep in touch. Please let us know for sure your next project. We look forward to it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode includes Helen the Heartland by Jax Miller, Unsolved Mysteries, Oxygen, and The Washington Post. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.